Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents. There's up and down, and how they got to the White House, but more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend that actually does the research, writes the scripts, and takes us down the sweet rose of history. Neil, how's it going? It's going good. I'm uh, looking forward to getting back into this, um, I don't even know what we call this era of American presidents, once you get past... John Quincy Adams, like the, I don't know, the pro-slavery presidents. Is that too harsh? Something like that. <laughs> but we're we're in uh, for a, an the wig era. It's the wig era. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, I guess, I guess. So, yeah, but good overall. The moment that we we almost had a new party. If today we could have been still voting for the Whigs versus the Rep- uh, Republicans. Yeah. Or, or Whigs true. versus Democrats. I don't know who would have survived. Probably, probably, probably the Democrats would have been. It would have been Whigs versus them. But no, instead we got the Republican Party. So here we are today. So last time around we did a side episode, but before that we had a mid-season finale for the ages, in where our boy Chester Sheeta took down the mythical creature John F. Kennedy. Something that nobody saw coming, including Neil. I don't think he came into the episode thinking that he's going to pick Chester Sheeta over the mythical creature. But here we are with a new crown champion. And Neil, who is he going to go up against in his first title defense? He's going up against Martin Van Buren. The year is 1836. The Texas Revolution has kicked off with a battle at the Alamo uh, with an American settler army surrounded by the Mexican army under Santa Ana with later in the year Sam Houston being inaugurated as the first elected president of the Republic of Texas. Samuel Colt receives a United States patent for the Colt Revolver, the first revolving barrel multi-shot firearm ever produced. Thank you, Samuel Colt. Arkansas is the 25th state admitted into the United States of America. Charles Darwin returns to England aboard the HMS Beagle with biological data he would later use to develop his theory of evolution. And the United States election selects Martin Van Buren over William Henry Harrison and three other Whig candidates. Neil, take it away. <laughs> okay, so in taking the time to prepare for this episode, I started to reflect on the general underwhelming mood that I've tended to assign to presidents in the post-founding fathers generation and started to question if I was just being unjust to this generation of American politics. You know, if you set aside the moral society that existed, which also existed in the Founders era during this time, you know, that accepted and expanded slavery as well as, you know, limited most political rights to just white men, you can, you actually can maybe start to appreciate some of the development of political thought and the political forces that had to, you know, the courage the Founders era did it to take the stand that, you know, slavery existing and expanding was wrong. One being one example, Martin Van Buren, unfortunately, was not really a moralistic champion by any means. He was indeed a, a slave owner, but he's a great person to study to capture how the momentum was shifting in American politics on what American values truly represented. 
somewhat of a mysterious thing to try to define because it's probably true that mostly everyone has a different idea of what American values represent in any generation, especially today. And, you know, whether they even exist at all, mainly because it seems like they're constantly changing or being challenged from multiple political forces at any given time. Or being used as as blanket statements to protect your own views and ways of viewing the world. A little bit, yeah. And, you know, they're, I think, the most consistent driver of political turnout in any generation of American politics at the same time. You know, if you just use the example of our most recent general elections with people being, you know, so motivated by political slogans such as Make America Great Again, you can easily get the sense that the candidate leading that campaign is asking his supporters to reject the idea that the country has progressed on its values in, you know, preceding decades. In contrast, Clinton's 2016 slogan was, you know, forward together, which paints a a value slash cultural emphasis that the country overall had been moving in the right direction on all political fronts and that her campaign was the one to support to continue on the path that it was already moving in the executive branch. It was just eight years earlier, both parties were on opposite sides of the line in the 2008 election as, you know, Republicans had held the presidency for the previous two terms. Obama's slogan, Yes We Can and Change We Can Believe In, again stood out in stark contrast to McCain's very simplistic and maybe purposefully underwhelming country first slogan that was similar to Hillary's in the sense that they weren't trying to rock the boat or advocate for changing up the status quo in their campaign messaging. What I'm trying to say here is that slogans are you know, the most important factor in winning elections. No, I'm just kidding. But what I'm really trying to get at is the driver of what, most, of what motivates most people to engage politically in society. It's more so you know, based on how they can be psychologically and culturally activated, more so than by listening to arguments about what policies are better for the country. Yes, yeah, advertising. And, right. It's marketing. And this is why. Yeah, you know, it's why when I hear politics say things, or well, sorry, when I say, when I hear people say things like, how come these people don't realize they're voting against their own interests? As if, you know, they have this more sophisticated knowledge of what politics are good for society. They, I think they're, you know, they're extremely naive to the fact that many people don't really care about policies or federal policies for that matter. People just want to feel good. They want to feel energized and motivated. And, motivated. and I would argue even though it's a bit simplistic as events that happen in the world, you know, fuel whose campaign they want to put that energy toward, that, you know, it is the you know single largest driver of voting behavior, which, you know, which candidate represents what you see the country should embrace culturally. And also, you know, why you now feel like every, you know, it's probably why, you, you know, people feel every election 2016 onward, you know, even without Trump potentially being a, no- a nominee, you know, could lead to terrible consequences if your candidate doesn't win. Because, People feel this psychological protection that their cultural preferences and norms are in, you know, leadership and not being jeopardized. So yeah, and I, and and also know, a lot of people have tied their own self worth and self value, their own identity persona around political candidates. So them losing or them not being elected signifies them losing and them not being uh, in power. You know, it's it's become a yeah. It's become a, a, it's parasocial, a it's, it parasocial feels like a powerless thing, maybe, to people. Yeah, and that's why you see all those yeah, stupid stickers I mean, like, don't blame me, I didn't vote for ex-president, or uh, people that just keep, like, I don't know, like uh, Hillary and whoever the hell was it, her running mate back then, um, stickers still. And it's like, dude, that, that happened, like, 
12 years ago, let it go. Like, nobody cares anymore. But it's essentially them, like, holding on to this idea that their identity is not the reason why the company, the company, the country in their eyes is in, in shambles. Yeah, and so, I mean, I don't know. It's just a source of identity that's becoming more... I don't know if it's becoming like more of a thing in society, but I definitely think that you know media outlets have geared their um, coverage more towards like you know cultural wars, you know, and like I yes. say that in quotations, you know, and that's like kind of what drives a lot of people's attention. And so it's interesting here. And you know, what, why am I saying all this nonsense, you know, or not in a Martin Van Buren episode? <laughs> because you know he grasped this concept of voting behavior very well, which led him down a path where he can objectively claim to be, you know, the lead architect of the two-party system and this founding of the oldest political party in the U.S. today, that being the Democratic Party. It's, you know, fitting given he's the first president to be born in the United States, as the previous seven were born in England or on uh, uh, English colonial land. Mm -hmm. And when you think of, you know, the list of these first seven presidents, many of whom we've covered now, they're all powerhouse figures in shaping American politics. You know, even though both the Adams presidencies were one term and, you know, underwhelming as presidents, both John and John Quincy had 50-year political careers that arguably were more influential than most of the other five presidents in that list. And so with Martin Van Buren following up Jackson, I think most people would probably say this is where a drop-off in presidential pedigree happens, where we start to get the first of these, you know, whatever presidents in the 19th century. And in some sense, that's true. You know, most Americans you know, probably don't know that Martin Van Buren is a president um, or even someone of historical importance. It's really not true, though, in the era of Van Buren's political career, though, that, you know, because honestly, he honestly is a very well or very all-encompassing figure of taking the nation out of this mindset that we're all aiming for political harmony and a dystopian idea of American democracy. And he more so embraces the political world that actually exists in front of him and advances it to a higher sophistication of political organizing to win elections. His political career was somewhat born out of luck and opportunism from having this unique childhood of living in Kinderhook, New York. His family was described to be poor, but his father owned a tavern in the town that became a stopping point for political figures like Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and Aaron Burr when they would travel to and from Albany in New York City. That's the cast of Hamilton. What? That's the cast of Hamilton. (laughs) Right, pretty much. I mean... It's kind of I'm sorry, I'm, odd. I'm like, messing with you. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. Yeah, I, I mean, that is like essentially the cast of Hamilton without. If I would just would have said so was was but... that tavern in that you know in that musical that everybody loves or something? <laughs> is that the tavern of Van when they're like discussing their uh, revolution? Yeah, Van Buren just makes a slight little appearance in, in the musical. You didn't catch that? They're saying that. They're saying that. <laughs> they're not gonna miss. I'm not gonna You're such a hater. You know a lot. Shot. People love that musical. But it's like it's like senior oh senior Van Buren just serving him a shot and he's like, I'm not gonna miss my Okay, whatever. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but then Van Buren's dad also eventually became the city clerk and, and hosted specific political events in the tavern, interestingly enough, given giving Van Buren a, a ton of early political exposure growing up that, you know, most kids of his socioeconomic class never really, you know, dreamed of. So these political connections that his father made allowed Van Buren the opportunity to get a law degree in New York City as he could, you know, work as a clerk for people from whom his father had befriended throughout his life. 
And this launched Van Buren into a thriving legal career and eventually a successful state Senate campaign by his early 30s. You know, growing up in New York in the 1790s and 1800s meant that you were living in a very pro-federalist party state at the very height of the party's power. Um, but it was you know, actually anti-federalists like Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr that inspired Van Buren when he was young and had the most important, you know, had the most influence on his political thinking as he began to start his career. At first, this made winning elections very difficult for Van Buren because Jeffersonian principles were not as popular in New York. But he he gambled his career on believing in the Jeff in you know Jefferson cause and that it, you know would win out over Hamiltonian ideology that dominated national politics before the election of 1800. Van Buren's gamble paid off as he almost was forced out of political office numerous times in the 1810s as Democratic Republicans lost popularity because of the War of 1812. But when the war turned around for the U.S. in 1814, the Federalist Party is firmly defeated from ever making a comeback in national politics again, as the nation unites around Monroe, Monroe's one-party advocacy in a time known as the era of good feeling. And so, good as we all know in hindsight, you know Monroe was naive to think that a one-party system in the U.S. would ever hold up. And Van Buren, to his credit, always recognize that you know where did all these former federalists go it's not like they just ceased to exist and they certainly didn't just tip you know all tip their hat to jefferson and admit that they were wrong in thinking that a strong central government was more beneficial to the country than giving most political power to the states ben buren feared that the party he sacrificed his career for and poured his spirit into making new york a democratic republican state was now going to be infiltrated by these former Federalists that no longer had a party to house them. And you know, he was already starting to see troubling signs during Monroe's presidency when their administration signed into the creation of the Second Bank of the United States, which reversed Jefferson's ef- efforts as a long, a lifelong advocate to abolish a national bank in the country, which you know he eventually did in his own presidency. I want to emphasize again that Martin Van Buren was a Jefferson purist in almost every sense. You know, it was pretty much religious to him that the country not stray away from Jefferson's political philosophy. And he, you know, he reveled in actually being able to finally meet Jefferson in 1824 before he died in 1826. Going into the 1824 election, you know, it was the first that would be contested solely within one party as Monroe had run unopposed in 1820 and, and beat Rufus King, who was a Federalist in 1816. And as you know, Yousef, this was, you know, the infamous election of the corrupt bargain where John Quincy Adams won over Andrew Jackson, Henry Clay, and William Crawford. Van Buren supported Crawford in that election because he also had a similar, you know, Jeffersonian warship complex and was very distraught on how the election was decided because it cut out the electorate and the voters to a large extent, something that Van Buren ironically thought was in complete opposition to Jeffersonian ideals. This election creates a real national crisis slash disaster in Van Buren's point of view because there really isn't there isn't really a mechanism now to distinguish Jeffersonian principles like there were in previous decades. Everyone had to join the Democratic Republicans to win office, and because of that, you know there weren't real Democratic Republicans, you know, just in name only. And when you know you kind of hear that in the modern way with you know the term rhino for Republicans, but you know, that's exactly what he thought of John Quincy Adams, given that JQA's main goal during his presidency was to use the federal government to lead the funding on infrastructure product projects across the country, mainly in creating canals for more efficient uh, transport of goods. 
Van Buren was disgusted at the idea of the federal government putting any funding into state projects because it would inherently expand its power and the state's reliance on it. So Adams, leading the Democratic-Republican Party, almost was like, you know, AOC leading the Republican Party to Van Buren. You know, the, the name and the party values that once existed meant nothing to it anymore from his standpoint. Van Buren says, you know, forget this, as he sees the country heading, you know, backward, that, you know, down, sorry, downward back to a, a federalist ideology and leads the effort for classic Jeffersonians to ditch the party under the new name of the Democratic Party and unite around the one guy who was more upset about the election of 1824 than Van Buren was, that person being none other, none other than Andrew Jackson. Again, Van Buren did not you know, have close ties to Jackson before the 1824 election, and he actually didn't even see, you know, didn't even support him as he viewed him as too much of a non-committal political figure who didn't really seem to have any true political values, but more so just, you know, was in politics to solely obtain power. That's my opinion, hmm. anyway. That's a fair assessment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds reminiscent of you know a lot of politicians throughout history and modernly. And this is how it's it like goes. ninety-nine but, percent of politicians. Yeah. Van Buren starts to see the value in Jackson, though, as he becomes a you know more polished as an anti-strong central government communicator and has an everyday man appeal from voters that was very reminiscent of Jefferson's appeal. You know, Jackson won the popular vote in 1824. He was very charismatic, which was becoming more important than it was in the founders era. And he knew how to command an audience and was a natural leader. And so, you know, Van Buren saw a Jeffersonian vice or, you know, some kind of prophet in Jackson to instill the nation's Jeffersonian values back into the White House. What was most crucial in, you know, Van Buren's move to help Jackson and create a new party was that they gained a timing advantage over the Adams supporters that remained. Democratic Republicans didn't act like, you know, how you would see a party today in fundraising and recruiting because there was no need to do any of that with everyone in one tent together. Now Jackson and Van Buren enjoyed the advantage of having more time to organize a base and cultivate the messaging behind Jackson's campaign for 1828. Adams' candidacy eventually fell into its own party as well, it's called the National Republican, but he was too late to the game. He had, you know, little to say in what he accomplished in his one term as president and did not, you know, campaign effectively as, you know, many states started to loosen requirements and enfranchise, you know, more white men to be able to vote by the time the election came around. And Yeah, man, get that white power. I mean, sorry, white people. <laughs> and, and Jackson had the party infrastructure because of Van Buren to, you know, swoop those voters up and win in the landslide. Of course. For Van Buren's efforts and being somewhat of the mastermind in this whole game plan, Jackson ironically awards him with a nomination to be the Secretary of State for his administration, which I say ironically because, you know, Henry Clay got the nomination for Secretary of State when Adams won um, in 1824. Um, the 1828 election and its aftermath, you know, was a beautiful story for Van Buren as he got everything that he wanted out of all of his efforts after the 1824 election. A Jeffersonian-like president more political power for himself and the ability to you know control the narrative of what elections were about in the first place this goes back to my original point earlier in this episode where i said you know campaigns are really you know more about a feeling for people more so than what is reality the jefferson you know the jefferson feels would always prevail in van buren's mind it looked like you know he was right for a long time too it's not like jackson was a perfect carbon copy of Jefferson, you know, he definitely did his own thing when it came to certain political choices that we'll get back 
we'll get to in his episode, but he did engage in a successful long fight to demolish the second bank of the United States and also rooted out people in his cabinet who wanted to stray away, you know, too far away from Jeffersonian principles. Most notably, Vice President John Calhoun's push to support South Carolina in the nullification crisis as you know, South Carolina was refusing to comply with the tariffs of the federal government and made the argument that they did not need to adhere to federal tariffs. Now, Van Buren argued that this was going too far in the direction of states' rights and that the tariff was one of the sole federal sources of power that states had to abide by. Jackson agreed with Van Buren and made him president for the 1832 election ticket in which Jackson won in a landslide. The Jackson and Van Buren dominance of this era was becoming frustrating for anyone who wasn't able to have influence in their fold, as Jackson was not, you know, the most inclusive president and politician, to say the least. So Van Buren went from the what was back then the surefire hit to becoming a president, which was like the state uh, secretary to vice president and then president. That's a that has to be like a abnormal route for a position yeah. figure back then that, that is not a normal route yeah but I, I think that people were still very comfortable with the idea of like the vice president kind of especially if you have a popular president they kind of take over the reins right you know monroe i guess you know wasn't he was the secretary of state but yeah it was either a secretary of state or vice president who really got this this elevation into like being the next person to take over and as we'll get to it you know jackson like led his thoughts you know, be known very clear, you know, that he wanted Van Buren to succeed him. But yeah, it is interesting that the path there, because I don't think, especially within the same administration or the same presidency, you have someone going from secretary of state to vice president. I don't think this ever happened. Jackson's defiance over vetoing bills that came out of Congress that would expand federal authority over economic matters was most frustrating to his opponents and caused them to accuse him of acting like as if he was a king only acting in his own self-interest instead of for the people. And so this faction started to grow with segments of political thought that weren't exactly historically aligned. There was Henry Clay, and his supporters were among the group who backed the need to have a national bank. And John C. Calhoun had a faction that wanted to go further in keeping the federal government out of state politics. And then you just had you know other major politicians who hated Jackson and wanted his brand of politics to be defeated. This movement of anti-Jacksonian politics is how we get the Whig Party, which starts picking up momentum as quickly as the Democratic Party had in the 1820s. Jackson decides he's going to, you know, respect the president of George Washington and not run for a third term. And this all but secures Van Buren as a Democratic nominee, as Jackson tells his party that, you know, that's who, success, who his successor will be. Van Buren gets nominated on the first ballot. And, you know, fortunately for him, finds out that he's up against four people, as you mentioned earlier, Yousef, from the Whig Party <laughs> instead of facing one unified candidate. They the weren't a full, they pull a full deck. They weren't just like... <laughs> right. <laughs> just, they thought that... They were, you know, they the were just like, just yeah. pick somebody else, please. Just anybody else. Look at, look, <laughs> look at this. Look at this lot. Yeah. Look at this crop. We gave you so many options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, it's an interesting strategy because... They thought tactically the move to win would be by trying to divide the electorate. Diluting, diluting the, the pool? That's how they're going to win? No, yeah, well, they thought by geographical lines, people would just vote for the geographical person, right? Because all Whig candidates represented, you know, strong coalitions within their respective regions. So, but so that much, you know, that the House... But a cohesive vote, you know, They're just diluting the pool, the pool. That's essentially what Teddy did 
um, and led to um, Woodrow. They've split the vote amongst each other instead of having one solid candidate. That's true, but the goal was to make sure that nobody won the Electoral College. So much so that the House would have to decide the election again and award to someone other than Van Buren. They, their approach was that if we you know, don't let them get over the Electoral College threshold line, then we can, you know, convince House members to not elect a, a Jackson successor, which, you know, that, that was the game plan. And so was <laughs> the House against, But was the House against um, another, like a Van Jackson? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think that they, it wasn't clear that they were, but I, they thought that unifying behind a candidate would doom their strategy of even winning the election. They really thought that they could win over the House more so than they could the American voter at this point. So they, they, so clearly, they, they clearly fought this one through and it and it paid off. And how about we talk about uh, the the Whig uh, candidate that won this election? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. The strategy what? does backfire as they, they they underestimate Jackson's strength and populism, and Van Buren crushes the party electorally. They underestimated the guy that won the swept two elections, and the second election had the Van Buren. In the ticket, how did how did they not see that yeah. one coming? Yeah. Starting to think that the Whig party is not that smart, and they're not gonna last a, lot, a long while. I'm starting to think. I'm starting to suspect something here, Neil. Yeah. Well, it, it, at first, I mean, I'm gonna give them a pass on this election. I think just because you know you're just trying to get things together. It's all exciting. You don't really know who's taking the lead on all this stuff, and so you're like, oh yeah. You know, let's just let's just roll the dice here and and give everybody a chance to run for this first election. I don't know, um, but interestingly enough, Van Buren became the last vice president elected to the presidency until George H. W. Bush in 1988. Wow. Um, no, yeah, no one ever succeeded the presidency by winning an election. They only succeeded by death of a president or. Well, yeah, I mean, Johnson did win another election, but he succeeded, you know, at first by you know taking over from JFK's death. Now we have the Martin Van Buren presidency. And I got to say, Yusuf, it sucked. It was, <laughs> it was pretty terrible. Arguably right, so one of the worst. How about we <laughs> go to everybody's, I think that's a great description. It's <laughs> a great summary. I don't think we need to yeah. explore any just, further. It just says it's... <laughs> No, no, like you're moving forward now that all of our <laughs> all of our episodes are gonna be you setting up how they got there and just saying like, hey, it was pretty good. All right, so let's move on to the next president. <laughs> they yeah, kind of suck. That's all you need all to right. know. But look, okay, we we gotta explain just a little bit more here. We don't get like, well, the reason it sucks so much is because there's actually not much to talk about. I mean, I guess there is, but at the same time, Van Buren is so. I'll get into it. All right. Jackson's economic policies that Van Buren enabled and supported were a big driver of the nation's inability to relieve suffering during the panic of 1837 that hit the U.S. two months after Van Buren took office. Forget the, the Great Recession. All right. This, this economic downturn is probably the worst economic disaster in U.S. history besides the Great Depression. British banks were huge drivers of the U.S. economy at this time. And so Many American businesses relied on British loans to state banks to have the finances that you know they needed to operate. The British economy was in a downturn in 1837, and as a result, the cash flow from the British government started to decrease rapidly. And mm. so that led to state banks having to call in loans because they were losing money supply and needed to keep up with all their accounts. 
Jackson also made things worse here during his presidency by requiring purchases of federal land to be made with gold and silver rather than paper money, which led to a shortage of metals to pay for these things once the panic erupted and gave banks fewer options to work with in keeping themselves afloat. And so, of course, without being able to borrow, businesses had to shut down, tens of thousands of people lost their jobs, and more people began to go hungry. Obviously, this is somewhat Hoover-like timing for Van Buren to come into office, but he gets less of a pass because I think there's much more you can blame on the actions of his and Jackson's policies for the panic than you can blame on Hoover and Coolidge for the Depression. What really does it all for me here in this Van Buren episode, though, is the guy who is supposedly this this pure disciple of Jefferson— in, you know, his his solution to getting the economy back on track is to create an independent treasury system <laughs> in which the federal government would deposit its funds in a series of sub-treasuries. And then Van Buren and his advisors hoped that an independent treasury would stabilize the American financial system by refusing poorly managed state banks access to federal to government funds, which they might use recklessly. So what does this sound like to you, Yusef? Because to me, it sounds a lot like what a national bank is supposed to do. No, um, no, no, no. You're getting confused again. And it's just so it's just this so is typical. exactly what you know, Jefferson you're... wanted. He just didn't know how to put it into words. But Van Buren knows. <laughs> Come on, who's who who okay, who do you trust? Somebody that doesn't know I don't remember uh Jefferson's uh, beard facial hair, but I do remember uh, Van Buren's one. Um, does Jefferson have a Facial hair? He doesn't, right? No, he doesn't. He's a right? clean, so, he's a clean-shaven fellow. So, who do you trust? A man that has a clean-shaven face, or a man that does not grow a mustache or chin, but fully grows out his chops, just like just lets them go wild. I trust that man over Jefferson. That's how Fair I judge. Enough. That's how I'm. Yes, yeah. I'm decided that moving forward, I'm just gonna judge. All of the presidents People based on their hair. facial hairs. Well, then you're having a hard time in the in the 20th century onward because there's like nobody with facial hair after like Taft. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's I'm I'm pretty much giving you my answers up front. How I'm gonna judge <laughs> all the modern politics. Okay, I just think you know it's so typical. You know, your whole political career is cultivated by this purest idea that in a when it is convenient for you to bend your ideology to make you look better. You can all of a sudden stomach the federal government having more power. Calling it the independent treasury system doesn't save you from this hypocrisy. Um, it's not a national bank. It's not a national no, bank. Even though it does the same thing, it's a national bank. <laughs> so everybody's confused, right, at this, this solution of Van Buren's, considering what, you know, they're, you know, they're also aware that Van Buren is the main reason why an institution like this doesn't already exist. And so... Arguing takes place about whether to create an independent treasury in Congress for the next three years as the nation suffers with nothing being done to relieve it. In 1840, you know, the bill, a bill finally makes it out of Congress. But by then, Van Buren was extremely unpopular and was facing a unified Whig party heading into the general election under the nomination of former Ohio Senator William Henry Harrison and his running mate, John Tyler. William, good old, good old William Henryson. He's gonna have a bright, bright future ahead of him. I have a, a long, it's long a, political career ahead of him. Well, I think the part of the problem was that Harrison already had a long political career. He actually, 
I mean, I'm spo- spoilers for. We'll no, no, really no spoilers, no spoilers. But I'm also <laughs> so, sure that the, that duo, that dynamic duo, are gonna, you know, have a what blossoming career together. And also, uh, Tyler will go on to be like very pro America, very pro um, state rights, and have a beautiful um, history. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We love him. We love yeah, him. Have a really. I, it's just a, a, it's ceremony, a prediction. A funeral it's ceremony a, where he didn't get buried in a Confederate flag. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, it was similar to Adams. Van Buren doesn't really have any political, you know, win that he can showcase in getting reelected. The other most notable events that happen while he's in office is that he violently forces the Cherokee Nation of Native Americans to move west of the Mississippi River into Oklahoma. Now and, that is very Jefferson though. That is truly very Jefferson. So he stays in line with his, you know, political idol. Yeah, well, that's true. It's very Jacksonian as well. Um, and so, that yeah, he's, he's checking the boxes on that and for um, that faction of his purist ideology, I suppose. But, you know, the the Seminole tribe, for example, who, well, no, I should say I wanted to complete, you know, a quarter of the tribe dies on that journey. Um, well, you know, and the whole broad, the whole broader movement is called the Trail of Tears from 1830, 1830 to 1850. But, you know, the Seminole tribe who lived further south and mostly Florida went to war with the U.S. government and thousands uh, died as a result of that. You know, most people think of Jackson as being the most cruel president to Native Americans, which he, he was very cruel. But Van Buren actually is a president who probably tops the list and it is a stain that should be highlighted more. On Van Buren's name. As we know from the Tyra episode, Texas annexation was a big issue during this time as well. And Van Buren takes a position to not support annexation despite Jackson's wishes for him to do so because he's up against, you know, the uh, he's against the expansion of slavery. Well, that is, you know, the one redeeming quality for Van Buren here is that even after he's defeated in 1840, he actually runs for president again in 1848 as a nominee of the Free Soil Party that. Is formed exclusively on the issue of stopping slavery, um, expanding into other states. And so he actually wins 10% of the popular vote in that election, which is the highest of a third-party candidate until Teddy um, uh, Rex Taft in 1912. This might be a short episode here, but, you know, there you have it, Yusuf. You know, what do you think What do you think of Martin Van Buren now that we've gotten to the end here? I don't know. He's kind of like a nothing, right? I mean, well, outside I mean, of him being like a horrible human being. And but like in terms of being a uh, a president, it's like nothing, right? Did we get anything from him outside of him destroying a beautiful nation that lived in the states prior to us? Not us. I wasn't here. Prior to them being here, you know. Outside of that, did he do anything? I mean, he did. He did form, you know, the the one of the two, you know, political parties that we still vote for today and i mean obviously like it was a major political figure i think that again i was trying to strike the tone well, that but he formed but he, he uh, formed the he formed like the the name right because that that party has nothing to do with the party that it is today right pretty much completely that is correct it has not i mean yeah no i'm not saying i'm not saying yeah i wasn't saying that the democratic party of then is like the same party as today but certainly you know he i think revolutionized what political parties look like in this country, in a sense, and that that is an important contribution to American politics. And so, I guess that, that is you know what you 
I mean, one of the things you should think of with Martin Van Buren, I wouldn't say he's a nobody, but he definitely is just disappointing in almost every facet, you know, other than well, he doesn't disappoint with his pitcher, though, though. He's not disappointing with his favor. <laughs> I'm going to have to disagree with you, Leader Neil. Okay. So he has two points yeah. for facial hair and negative 100 for uh, the trail tears and, and his and support of like a partial views. Yeah. And being partially progressive on, well, not even progressive, just partially not a, a bigot on, you know, the issue of slavery. But again, him he was owner, a slave owner. Yeah, so him owner. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like that, so, you know. That 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 closeted gay man that votes f against gay rights and then he's outed as being gay is like, hey, you're a slave owner. Why aren't you, why are you voting for pro-slavery here? I don't know. To each his own, I guess. It probably was some financial aspect to it or some somebody got into his pocket and he voted that way. You never know what. How he came to that conclusion, despite it being full of hypocrisy. What do you think of um, him not wanting to yeah. annex uh, Texas? Annex Texas. Well, I mean, I do. I support the decision, like the in the sense that you know he didn't want to expand. So, I mean, the thing is, is that during that time, I don't know, you don't really have a choice because he didn't want the country to go into civil war. But you know, if you would have like firmly change directions and said that he was an abolitionist that also would have created a bunch of tension and and then he thought that he would never be able to be reelected. and so you know i i just wish that again the founders really just messed up and like they weren't great people as we talked about and very hypocritical and i think that martin van buren kind of falls in that mold but like yeah not annexing texas like that's just uh it's not it's it's really I mean it's not a big win for him at all. Like even though it, the people try to paint it as a win for him that he was somewhat ethical, it's more so that he was just trying to hold on to power with that move. So yeah. He just sucks, like I said. I'm not a fan. <laughs> what a what a what a what a comeback to this what a season three mid season premiere, huh? Martin Van Buren. Yeah. Um it this is the type of precedent like every now and, yeah. and again every now and again we get like a Chester Sheeta. Or a Quincy, or even a Ulysses, that you go like, hey, why do, why don't people talk about them more often? Even a Woodrow Wilson, a lot more people should be talking about Woodrow Wilson. Then you know, a Van Buren comes around, and you go like, yeah, no wonder history does not look back on them <laughs> at all. They're just there. I mean, there's there's sometimes a reason for it. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Do you want me to go to the question, or want to give me something else to chew on? No. I mean, I would just say that, yeah, I think there's something, like, there's some presidents, you don't know their name. I think, again, yeah, for, for good reason, like you said, like, they're just either really bad or really didn't do anything. I think Chester was one of those weird ones where it was like, oh, this is like a, a diamond in the rough president. At least I thought of him that way. And so I get excited about those episodes. But yeah, we're known again, we'll find, I think we'll find somebody else. It's not, yeah. it's not outside of the realm. I was looking for it here. I was really looking for it here. I'm Van Buren. Yeah, no, you look, you look in the yeah, wrong place. It's not. No, I don't think. I don't <laughs> think morally or ethically, ethically, we can crown a slave owner. We can, we can applaud certain political views that they have outside of it, but I don't know if I could, I could uh, crown a well, slave owner. Well, I mean, I think that that's so. 
This is the thing. Most people put George Washington as like the number one. No, it's just because they're like because he's like the face, you know. He's in the dollar bill. He's he's Uncle Sam almost, you know that. He's he's the. He has a lot of accomplishments too. I mean. Sure, but he's like the marketing guy. He's the marketing guy. He has nothing to do with what we are, you know. He was the general. He was the first president, sure, but. Oh. He didn't write the he didn't hot. write the constitution. I didn't know we were gonna get a bunch of hot takes and No, he's you know, come on. It's like it's like saying uh, like Babe Ruth is the best bas- baseball player. Like, sure. No. No, he's not. You know? It's just because <laughs> he's a legend uh, or an icon from the yesteryears. You cannot put him in, in the same leagues of the political figures yeah. that came after him. He's just the first. You know, everybody uh, everybody loves their first, I guess. And that includes America. <laughs> I love that. Um, George, George Washington will be a fun episode, I think. That'll be interesting. So Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Off that. Every now and again, I go into some weird, very weird side tangents that I'll probably completely forget until I'm editing this episode. And maybe they'll make it and maybe they won't. There's a lot of things that... <laughs> there's a lot of things that I say that I do not make it. So if you ever are listening to this podcast and you go like, what the hell is he even talking about? Just imagine the things that I've cut out. All right. So Neil, last time around, Chester Sheeta defeated the mythical creature, the one that we thought that was going to run the gamut until a certain political figure came around that might have been, might be the best one, that at least in the way that you've talked about him in the past. But surprisingly, Chester Sheeta took win his to with his fingers co- covered in she's crumb grabbed that title from the mythical creature and now will martin van buren and his amazing facial hair take the crown away from chester sheeta no legally legally not. binding i forgot to say that it's legally binding you know legally binding yeah, I mean, honestly, Marvin Van Buren could be whenever we have this final list at the end. He, I mean, he could be the worst. He could be the worst. I don't, maybe, maybe not quite the worst, but oh. definitely in, in the bottom five. Woodrow and Tyler so, would like uh, to have a conversation with you. Yeah, so Chester Arthur moves on. He gets his first title defense. There you go. You're not a real four. champion until you defend that title at least once. That's that's there's a rule in boxing and a rule in MMA. So now. Chester can claim to be our true champion. Um, but how about if he can um, get two wins in a row? Now, that would be an accomplishment. Very few here in this podcast have yeah. been able to hold on. No, that's not that true. That's not true, Neil. You know it. The champions <laughs> usually go on a, on a very long streak. All of them have gone on a good, solid streak. Grant had a great streak. JFK had a great streak, and now Chester Sheet. And there's another one in there, actually. Eisenhower was it, right? Who was no, Eisenhower. It was Truman. Truman, Truman. I'm sorry, man. Everything is bleeding out of my ears. Time and space. <laughs> so, Neil, Chester Sheet, a second defense. Who's he, who is he going to go up against? Uh, he's going to go up against someone I just already name-dropped, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Oh, really? Yes. I was seeing into the future, Neil. See? Time and space and everything doesn't mean anything. It, does that mean that Eisenhower is going to win that episode? And that's how I know that he was a champion. 
I was bleeding out of my ears because I already saw the future, Neil. Is that what's happening right now? Did I spoil the the this next episode? We'll never know. Uh, well, well, you I'm know. I'm not sure yet. Yeah. All right, I don't know. This one was a weird one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've, we've, I, I feel like this was, <laughs> this was a, a, one of our weakest episodes, but it's not because of Neil or me, it's because of Mark and It's a, uh, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a weird. I don't, I don't think it was one of our weakest episodes. It was a weak episode, Neil, but it's not your fault or mine. It's Martin Van Buren. So I know 100% that Eisenhower will give us a better episode. All right, yeah. so thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Uh, share with your friends that history buff that never stops talking about history. Send in our way. And maybe, maybe he'll like it. Maybe he won't. But at least you'll get a respite from him for an hour or so. See you in two weeks. Bye.